Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Well, this morning, we are turning our hearts back to 1 Peter. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me back to the first chapter of 1 Peter. And um, last Sunday, we looked at, at verse, just the opening verses, but really we, we used those as a springboard to do an overview of the entire book. But this morning, we're going to get into the body of the letter, which begins in verse 3 and continues all the way to the, almost to the very end of chapter 5. And as we get into this this morning, we're going to see that Christ's resurrection is, in many ways, the hinge pin of our faith, our confession, our, our belief. And Jesus is preaching and teaching his miraculous works that we uh, read about in the Gospels, even his death on the cross, those are significant things, those are meaningful things, but if that were all that he did in his earthly ministry, um, that would not be unique to him as the Son of God. What makes Jesus unique isn't just that the power of God was demonstrated in his life. Um, many Old Testament saints had that experience. It wasn't even that he died an innocent death, as so many have suffered uh, for God's name. What makes Jesus unique, what makes him the object of our faith, is directly connected to the reality that he was raised from the grave and is alive today. That's what matters. Romans chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul says that Jesus, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, was declared the Son of God with power, and here's the reason, by the resurrection from the dead. Because Christ is risen from the dead, it has been proven to us beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is, in fact, the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Christ's resurrection, then, is the hinge pin of the Christian's faith. Without it, Paul says our faith is worthless. He says that in chapter 15 of of 1 Corinthians. And we are still trapped under the weight of our sin. So, considering its importance then we as believers are hard-pressed to oversell the resurrection as we go about our lives, as we preach and teach. We can't make too big of a deal of it uh, with unbelievers because it's at the heart of the gospel, the fact that Christ has been raised. And for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, you can't dwell upon it too frequently because it's the core, it's the foundation of our hope. And it's this resurrection hope that occupies Peter's mind here as he begins to write to these believers in the churches of Asia Minor. Peter writes, as we learned last Sunday, to churches scattered throughout what we would call modern-day Turkey. And he is speaking to believers who, if they were not already, were standing at the threshold of intensifying persecution He's encouraging them in this letter, we said, to stand firm in their faith, to live sanctified and holy lives. For his readers, then, this letter becomes a word of hope in an ever-darkening world as they go about their lives. To be a Christian in that context, in that day, meant that they were going to be pushed to the absolute margins of society. It meant that they were going to be, uh, become a minority In a world that hated them, it meant that they were become objects of contempt. They were often the 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 objects of suspicion, falsely. As as the Christians wrote, uh, as Peter wrote to these Christians, excuse me, their opportunities in this present world were growing smaller, not greater. Their influence was growing smaller and not not greater. Peter writes to them then in order to fix their gaze upon what is awaiting them in the world to come. 
I want you to notice how he begins in this letter after uh, just a standard salutation. He begins in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter begins here in verse 3 with a word of blessing, a word of blessing or praise uh, to the triune God. That's who he's addressing here. But we need to understand here that this, these are not um, mindless, formulaic things. You know, sometimes we have our Christianese and we just say things. We don't even really think about it. They just kind of fall out of our mouths. Um, and, and, and we have to be careful because that doesn't happen in the scriptures. Every word is inspired by the Spirit of God. Uh, every, every word is, is, is perfect and good and right and necessary. And so what we're not, we're not reading in verse 3 a formulaic expression, but rather Peter's heart overflowing with sincere praise toward God, like a cup that's just, that has no more space left in it. All it can do is, is run over. To declare, as he does here in verse 3, that God is blessed is to say that God is worthy of praise. That's what the word, that's what the term means. This is a distinctly Christian blessing, of course. It's not just any old blessing. God is the Father worthy of praise, which would have been affirmed by any Jew. That's true of any Jewish person could have said, God be praised. But Peter pulls the Lord Jesus into this praise as well. You notice that? And she shows us that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God and the Sovereign of the universe, referring to both God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. So Peter begins here with a word of blessing. Praise be to God. So the question is, why is Peter overflowing with praise? Why, why, these, why this effusive uh, praise? Well, it's because of what he says that, that follows. It's connected to what God the Father has done for him and what he has done for his audience, for his readers. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He says here that the living God is worthy of praise because he has caused the heart of Peter, he has caused the heart of his readers, and he has caused the heart of every true follower of Jesus Christ to be born again. This is such a vivid description of the spiritual transformation that takes place in the heart of a, of a Christian. Every human being... We know this from the scriptures. Every human being is born in sin, spiritually dead in their, in their hearts. They are alive on the outside. They can do all the things that a normal person can do. But inside, spiritually, the scripture says they are dead. They're kind of like spiritual zombies. And Ephesians 2 says that we walked formally according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And he says, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children destined for wrath, even as the rest. This is our spiritual condition, default spiritual condition. The Bible says we are slaves of our sin nature, and it leaves us blinded to spiritual truth. We can't see it. I mean, we can understand it mentally, but we don't believe it, and we certainly aren't trusting in it. I think about every once in a while you'll see a news story where some young child 
out in the woods somewhere. Maybe their family lives someplace very rural. Their child just wander off into the woods. And <laughs> praise God, most of the time those little ones are found. They're like sleeping next to a bear or something like that. But that's us apart from Christ. We're that little child wandering in the cold, dark forest spiritually. This is who we are in Christ. But what Peter reminds us of here is that God, in his great mercy, looked down upon every believer, helpless and pitiable in their spiritual blindness, and by his sovereign power gave that individual new spiritual life. He regenerated our stone-cold hearts when we heard the gospel, and he made it come alive in our minds so that we... what, and it produced such a radical transformation in our hearts, so complete, so deep, that it could only be described in the scriptures as being born again. And so Paul says, but God, rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. He says, by grace, you have been saved. In his mercy, The scripture says God has made us into a living soul. Jesus said being born again is the only way that anyone can enter into the kingdom of God. There's no other way in. John 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Or verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. God in his great mercy births us again. He transforms every true believer, spiritually speaking, from a walking corpse to a living soul. And this rebirth is made possible on account, as we learn here in the text, from Jesus' resurrection from the grave. Look at the end of verse 3. All of this takes place through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus' resurrection, is. think of it this way, is the coronation. It's the coronation of his earthly ministry. He's no savior without the resurrection. Without the resurrection, we would be without hope. He died to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose so that we would have eternal life. And that Christ truly was raised from the grave, that's an incontrovertible fact. We have eyewitness testimony of hundreds of Uh, individuals accounted for and attested in the Gospels that they spoke with him, they, they ate with him, they touched him, they walked with him along the road. He lived. Peter knew and we know by the eyewitness testimony of God's word that we have a living Savior. But not only do we have a living Savior who by his great mercy has made us into living souls, Peter acknowledges that this rebirth has ushered us into a living hope. You see that in verse 3. Because God is blessed and he has caused us in his mercy to be born again, he has given us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, when you and I think of the word hope, we often think of more of of a wish, a desire, a strong desire that something will happen. But that's not how the scriptures speak of hope. Hope is tethered to the promises of God. Hope is is tethered to the the faithfulness of God, as we're going to learn in equipping hour this morning. It's a confident expectation in God's future faithfulness and his presence in our lives. 
It's not a wish. It's a firm conviction of God's faithfulness. And this hope is described as a living hope. It has this descriptor, this this adjective to describe. It's not just hope, it's a living hope because it's distinct from what the world has. The world doesn't have a living hope. They have hope and they have wishes and desires, things that they want to see happen. But the world generally lives without hope. Paul even acknowledges that back in Ephesians 2 where he says that before Christ we had no hope and we're without God in the world. Sophocles, the ancient Greek playwright, wrote, Not to be born at all, that is by far the best fortune. The second best is as soon as one is born with all speed to return thither whence one has come. That's how ancient philosophies of the world think about what man's hope is. To a, to a lost and a dying world where everything fades, where everything decays, yeah, there are moments of happiness, there, there, there are, in, you know, there's, there's seasons of, of joy, but it all ultimately leads to darkness and a worldview that is without hope. If we need any proof of that, all we need to do is look at the statistics of the rates of severe depression and suicide just in our own country over the last 25 years. It's increased something like 30, uh, a, thir- a third just in 25 years. But for the Christian, Peter says we have been born again by God to a living hope. We have an ever-growing, ever-expanding confidence in God for the future. And our experience of that hope individually, increases the longer we walk through the Christian life. Um, it's a lot like a, a tool. Uh, those of you who have ever played and, and gotten competent with a musical instrument, you remember when you first picked that instrument up or you started working with that tool on a job, it, it seemed clumsy, it seemed very awkward, it didn't seem like it was ever going to really do what you wanted it to do. But the more you work with it, the more you practice the longer you, you use it on the job day by day, the more familiar you become with it. And the more you realize that your confidence in it, in what it can and cannot do, and what you can do with it, and eventually your, your confidence and your expectation grows and that thing can, can sing. So it is in the Christian life. As Peter writes to these believers, this living hope runs deep in his heart. And he wants them to share in it as those set apart from a world that's increasingly turning their back on them. In our text this morning, Peter praises God because he has sent a living Savior, he has made us a living soul, and he has given us a living hope. And that living hope has a foundation. It's built on something. In, in 1 Peter <clears throat> 4, a 1, 4, and 5, in specifically this morning, Peter's pointing out to us that the foundation stones of this living hope are built upon three things. And we're going to see what those are in just a moment. These profound spiritual realities are what undergird our, our living hope. And like, uh, and it's a living hope. It's a structure that any structure that grows and expands and grows taller has to have an ever stronger foundation. Otherwise, it will collapse in on the weight of its own expectations. And Peter is going to show us this morning that we have a living hope that will not crumble, that will not fail. And he gives, three, we could call these maybe three foundation stones or, or um, three spiritual realities. You can, three whatever, you know, plural noun proposition, whatever you want here. But 
The reality is that he praises God with a living hope for three reasons. And we want to look at those in detail this morning. First, he praises God with a living hope because he has and we have a future reward. Because we have a future reward. Look at verse 4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what end? To obtain an inheritance. Because we are born again spiritually, we now bear the title children of God. That's who we are in Christ. John says that everyone who believes, everyone who trusts upon the name of Jesus Christ, God gave him or her the right to become children of God. John 1, verse 12. So as spiritually reborn children of God, then we become part of God's family so to speak. We're no longer on the outside looking in on the things of God, but now we are on the inside. We are part of the family. When our children were born, they became by nature, by their physical birth, part of the Casali family. Sorry, guys. (laughs) It's the same spiritually when we're born again. We become part of God's family. We become sons and daughters, children of the living God, who are born again through our Heavenly Father. Being part of our, a family then comes with privileges. It comes with, it comes with benefits, one of which is that you and I share in the family's possessions and privileges. I always think I grew up, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s, and I, I and, and then, of course, was, came into adulthood in the early 2000s, and, and I always think about the Bush family. The Bush family has this compound, right, in Kennebunkport, Maine, that their dad bought, who knows when, back in the 70s or something. But, but what did you notice? Every year when, when they were presidents, multiple presidents, they, what did they do every year? The news would, they would go up to the compound. But not just George Bush Sr. and not just George Bush Jr. or whatever it was. But what? The whole family. All the siblings, all the cousins. Right? The, the whole family would get to come and enjoy this sprawling mansion up in Maine somewhere. Why? Because they're part of the family. And it's the same for us as God's children. Because we are part of God's family, we share in our Heavenly Father's possessions. Because we're part of God's family, we are entitled to certain spiritual privileges. And the Bible sums all that up by speaking of those things as our believer's inheritance. What is this inheritance? The living hope that Peter has, that he wants his readers to have, and he wants you and I to have, is grounded upon the fact that we have this future inheritance. What we have in this world is not all that we have. Which is, yeah, yeah, praise God, amen. Sin condemned us and excluded us from God's family by default. This is every human being's default condition, but God's mercy has caused us. It's been acted upon We've been acted upon to be born again, and it removes that condemnation. As we've, uh, we've, we did, a, I think it was last year or the year before, we did a, a Resurrection Sunday message just on adoption. We have been adopted into his family. It confers upon us an eternal reward. We get to enjoy all that God has secured for us. And Romans 8 speaks about this in some detail. In 8, chapter, uh, 8 and verse 15, he says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Ties in very tightly there with 1 Peter, doesn't it? All that belongs to Christ, think about this, belongs to you. That's a profound thing. The inheritance is ours now in part, but in the future we'll experience the fullness of it. It's yet to come. You say, well, what, is, what specifically is this inheritance? Well, we can survey the New Testament. And we can see some of the details and descriptions. Uh, part of uh, the inheritance that we will come into is that we will be made like Christ, perfect and holy. That's part of our inheritance. 1 John 3 and verse 1 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. But he says, Beloved, now, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So part of our, our future inheritance is this reality that we will be made perfect like Christ. Uh, another component of our future inheritance is that we will receive glorified bodies and perfected souls united together and fit for eternity. We will receive a perfected, a glorified body with a perfected soul, and those two will come together and, and be outfitted for a restored universe for a new heavens and a new earth. Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, he says, transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So we're going to receive a body united to a glorified soul so that we will be whole and fit for eternity. And third, a third component of our inheritance is that we get to enjoy all the privileges and all the blessings that God has prepared for his children in the new heavens and earth. And the greatest of that, of course, is fellowship with God himself. Revelation 21 speaks of all the, the things that will go away, all the first things that will melt away. And then he ends with this, he who overcomes Revelation 21, 7, will inherit these things. And then God says, I will be his God and he will be my son. So the believer's living hope is first grounded in the reality that God has given us a future reward, an inheritance. And we will come into that. Secondly, in this text that we're looking at this morning, 1 Peter 3, uh, 1, 3 to 5, Peter praises God with a living hope because that reward can never be lost. That reward can never be lost. Look back at verse 4. He has, he has borne us to this living hope to obtain an inheritance which is, he says, imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's one thing to have a future reward, but the question is how secure is that reward? We've all looked ahead to something with expectation and excitement only to have it slip through our fingers. It was pretty much every vacation we took when our kids were little. 
you would get excited and plan and prepare and go, and then the day of, someone would get sick. Or, uh, or somebody would have some weird allergy emerge. Or someone else would get sick on the destiny. It was just like one thing after another would just fall apart. We would look forward to it. And then just like that, it's gone. Vacation's over. I, I, I think when, I, when our kids are little, I, if I had to do it over again, I would just spontaneously leave and go on vacation. <laughs> Not so with our heavenly reward. It doesn't, it doesn't up and disappear. How secure is it? Peter, uh, Peter says it's untouchable. It's untouchable. Listen to the, the descriptors he uses here. It is imperishable, meaning it's not subject to decay. That's what that word means. In this world, everything has the seeds of decay kind of sown right into it. Over time, everything breaks down. But our inheritance is not like that. It's part of the heavenly realm where Jesus says neither moth nor rust can destroy it. It is undefiled. The root of this word defile carries the idea of coloring something by staining or painting it. And in a metaphorical sense, to defile something is for it to be stained with sin and corruption. Something that is undefiled isn't capable of being polluted. It isn't capable of being contaminated with sin. No evil can touch our inheritance. No evil person can take possession of it. Our future inheritance forever remains pure and remains unvarnished by sin's curse. Thirdly, it will not fade away. This description projects the picture of a beautiful flower that never dulls and never fades. As we're getting older, some of us, the beauty of our bodies is fading. Hair is thinning out. It's turning grayer. Bags are starting to set in under our eyes. We get wrinkles and splotches. And if we live long enough, our external beauty fades away. Not so with our internal inheritance. The attractiveness of our inheritance never diminishes with time. It never loses its luster. It is always flawless, like our wives, men. Our eternal inheritance, Peter says, is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. To put it another way, our inheritance is death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof. He goes on to give his readers assurance about their future reward by saying, it is reserved in heaven for you. The tense, the voice, and the original language indicate that our inheritance is something that God himself has stored up, that he's reserved in heaven for believers, and it continues to be there. It was something done in the past with continuing uh, 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 impact into the present and into the future. It's still reserved for them. It will never be denied to his children. Peter says to them that it has been kept for you, for you. That's an incredible, hope-inspiring truth. Now, contrast that with what the world offers. The internal reward is untouchable. But James, if you go back just one book over in James chapter 1, James contrasts and speaks about riches and the, and the, the rich man in this world, in this life, and he says they're like the flowering grass. 
He will pass away, for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and, it flowers, and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. He says, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. All that we chase after in this world will fall off like a dead flower. One minute it looks good, the next minute it's gone. But the inheritance has been laid up in heaven for us, can never be lost. It is imperishable. Paul, Peter says it is undefiled and it will not fade away. Thirdly, he praises God with a living hope because he is protected by the power of God. Peter praises God with a living hope because he has this eternal reward, that that eternal reward is absolutely secure and because he is protected by the power of God. It's all well and good that there's a future reward for us and that nothing can touch it, but will we get it? Will we take possession of it? I always think up until, um, I guess it was what, 2022, I always had a lot of pity for what is now King Charles when he was Prince Charles of Wales. That poor guy waited his whole life to be, waiting to be king. He's the longest serving heir apparent in British history, monarch history. I mean, for a while there, it really looked like it was going to slip through his grasp. <laughs> and it probably will here very soon. And that was probably a real concern for Peter's readers as they lived. They had to wonder, are, are we going to really get a hold of this thing? They were experiencing and would experience such intense persecution and pressure to walk away from Christ. They would, they would most certainly have been tempted to wonder, has God walked away from us? But he says, he has given us an inheritance which is imperishable, it is undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He says, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter wants his readers, and he wants you and I to know that if we're in Christ this morning, we are being protected even now by the power of God. This term protected is a, is a military term. It, it, it pictures a garrison that's untouchable by enemy forces. It can also carry the idea of protecting from attack in certain contexts, but also has the idea of not letting something escape. And whatever nuance is implied here, the point is the same in that it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. Nothing is coming in to attack this future reward and nothing is getting out and slipping away from our grasp. We are protected by the power of God until that future day when Christ returns. This is one of the most precious and comforting doctrines that we cling to in the word of God. It's known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Sovereign power here is just exploding off the pages of this letter. Scripture teaches with absolute certainty that all who are born again are kept by God's sovereign power. One day we will be together with the Lord and we will receive that eternal inheritance. And, and Jesus even alludes to this. I mean, Peter didn't just come up with this on his own. I mean, in John chapter 10, uh, our Lord makes this abundantly clear. He says in, in Romans, uh, John 10, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one, he says, will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who is in heaven has given them to me and is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus says those who follow him, those who are truly Christ's sheep, are given the gift of life, and no one can take that from them. Verse 28 is actually emphatic. In the original language, it's the strongest possible way to negate something. It says they shall certainly never perish. If you belong to Christ, if you've been born again, you will never lose your salvation or be separated from the love of Christ, which is just a wonderful thing to hold on to. Of Romans 8, again, in verse 30, Paul connects the, the past, the present, and the future all in one kind of summary chain. He says, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. There's this unbreakable chain that connects eternity past and eternity future for us. The choosing of our choosing in eternity past, or his choosing of us in eternity past, his working out of that salvation in the believer's life now, our calling, our justification, and there's a chain link between that and the final realization of God's future salvation, our glorification. And Paul sees the future event of the believer's glorification as so certain that he lumps it in the same, he speaks of it in the same way as he speaks about our choosing, our calling, and our justifying. That's why he can speak about it as if it's already happened. He glorified. And so if you're in Christ this morning, you can no more lose your salvation than you can actually go back in time and unbirth yourself. If you could do that, maybe you could lose your salvation. Otherwise, That's not an option. So the scriptures teach unequivocally that the true believer is kept by the power of God and will be together with the Lord forever in glory. You can praise God with a living hope because you are protected by the power of God. And how, practically speaking, does God's power protect you and I? How does it ensure that we receive this eternal inheritance? Look at the end of verse, or the middle of verse 5. You are protected by the power of God, what? Through faith. Through faith. Our faith, our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is the means by which we are protected. God doesn't save us apart from faith in Christ. God saves through faith in Jesus Christ. Those who continue to trust in Christ gain assurance that God is working in them that God is keeping them. And those who don't continue to trust in Christ have no biblical basis anyway to believe that they are the Lord's or will be with him in glory. That's why we see so many passages in Scripture, particularly in Hebrews, encouraging believers to persevere in faith. Don't let go of Christ. That's why there are so many encouragements throughout Scripture to keep trusting and Paul echoes this. Paul echoes this even in his, uh, in his final letter, 2 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 12. He says, he understands, uh, yeah, 2 Timothy 2, he says, uh, I, he, knows, he knows that God is able to keep what he has entrusted to him because God is trustworthy. Those who continue to trust in Christ gain assurance that God is working in them, that God is keeping them. Only a living Savior 
from the lips of a living soul can bring about this kind of living hope. And, and the Apostle Peter, like a cup here in the beginning, is filled to overflowing. He praises God in these opening verses because he has a living Savior. He has been given a living, he's been made a living soul, and he has been animated by the power of the gospel, and now he has a living hope. It's built upon his eternal reward. It's built upon the fact that that reward cannot be lost and that we are protected by God's sovereign power. But as we said a moment ago, this is only true if you've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. If you've bowed the knee of your heart and surrendered your life to his lordship, that's the only way it gets applied to your heart and your life. You must recognize that no good thing dwells in you. There, there is that you are dead, and you're not just broken, dead in your trespasses and sins, incapable of pleasing God, incapable of earning his forgiveness, and that Jesus died as a substitute for your sins, and he is alive today. You must believe that, and you must entrust yourself to that and follow him. The hymn writer, Rock of Ages, says, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. He said, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, else I die. My prayer for every single person here this morning is that that final verse would be the sincere and genuine testimony of your hearts. That you would come to the living Savior, asking and trusting in him alone to make you a living soul so that you might walk out of here this morning with a living hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this simple introductory comment by Peter and even in that, in three verses, we see things that just we could carry with us through the deepest, darkest trials of this life. And uh, Lord, we have not suffered as we probably could. Some of us have suffered a lot, but we, there's always more that we could endure, that we may, we may, may very well endure, but you're faithful and there is a future laid up for us that is beyond our searching out. We can plumb its depths throughout this life and never get to the bottom of it. So help us to look ahead with expectation, with confidence, with hope. And as we face trial and temptation, and as we, as Christians, increasingly are pushed to the margins of a world that hates the truth and hates us for loving the truth and loving the Savior, May, we not, uh, may our knees not grow weary. May we not become faint-hearted. But Lord, may we be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the Lord's work. Lord, emboss these things in our hearts this morning. Draw hearts even to yourself through the preaching of your word. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, Visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.